just take a moment and open up God's Word and, and see what God has to say to us. And um, I trust that He will speak to our hearts. I want to start out today and talk about rejection. Well, that sounds fun, doesn't it? Rejection. You know, it's part of life, is it not? Rejection. We've got some rejection that's kind of funny and some rejection that, that hurts and some rejection that has eternal consequences. I remember when I was about in maybe 10th or 11th grade. You see, I haven't always been this, like, you know, guy that had this beautiful woman by my side that you see standing next to me quite often. That, that hasn't always been the case. Now, Nancy's with me most all the time now, but, but there was a time before Nancy in my life. And like many of the other young men in the room, you know, I was trying to, to make my move at different places and just kept getting rejected. Do you remember some of those times, guys, when you would like, you know, work up the guts to make that move? For me, it was in Kaiser, West Virginia, at the armory, okay, the National Guard armory there, they would have a dance Oh, maybe once every two, three months, they would have a dance for all the high school students. And there was this girl, 10th grade, there was this girl in my 10th grade class that, man, she made my little young heart patter. I mean, she was just all, you know, she had that big poofy hair, remember that? You know, with that rake and she'd hairspray that thing, looking good, you know? And so one Friday night after a football game, I decided I was going to ask her to dance. Now, again, you have to realize, I, I was new, I was young, I, I didn't really know what I was doing, you know, but, so I worked up the guts, and over I went, she's standing over there in all of her glory, you know, leaning against the wall, <laughs> chewing her gum, her rake moving back and forth, and oh man, so I worked my way over, and I said, hi Cassie, how are you? Oh, hi, I said, you know me, right? I, 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 I'm in your algebra class. Yeah. She keeps talking to her friends. I'm like, I was thinking like maybe like the next song, like, I don't know if you're doing anything, but like maybe just, you know, like, I mean, maybe like we dance? She's like, what? She made me say it again. Well, I was thinking, like, the next song, like, slow song, like, maybe we could dance. The next, like, 30 seconds is probably the most horrible moment of my life. <laughs> she turns away and looks at her friend, and she doesn't know, but she turned. So she turned, so, like, now I can see this part of her face, okay? So she turned more than 180 degrees, and I can see her facial expression, and she goes... Turns back around and she goes, I don't like to dance. I'm like, okay, I I didn't think so. (laughs) Turned away and, you know, it slithered over here to the side. And I leaned against the wall now. And sure enough, all of a sudden, Chicago starts playing You're the Inspiration. You know the song, right? (laughs) And Mark, this other kid in our class, walks across the room. I mean, he's just like, hey, Cassie. You want to dance? She's like, oh, yeah. And out she goes. Oh, this big, you know, rejection. I mean, you're on the ground. Oh, it hurts. Have you been there? Am I the only one? 
I'm the only one. Oh, man, tough moments. It's awful to be rejected. There's some rejections that are funny. There's some that are sad. I had a family member. He grew up in the Depression age. Older man. Was always concerned. As a, growing up in those years, in the 20s and 30s, they were very, very poor. And so he was the kind of guy that when he would open up a Christmas present, he would break the tape very, very carefully and then fold the paper back up. It's like he was going to store it somewhere. You remember those people, right? Maybe some of you do that even now. And his family had purchased him gifts over the years at Christmas, carefully breaking that paper. He'd open up the gift and, oh, thanks, a drill. I really need one of those. The next year, Christmas come around, we do the same thing. Open it up, oh, a circular saw. Thank you. Really need one of those. When the man died and his son went into his home to empty out the house, as happens when men die and all that's left are their sons, his son goes to a closet. And there in the closet, on the top shelf, are all those gifts unopened. There's the drill, never opened. There's the circular saw, never opened. There's the shirt, never opened. Still in its container, sealed package. Gift rejected. And that's no laughing matter, because the son was my father. It's one of the few times I saw my dad very emotional growing up as he saw his father rejecting gifts that were offered. Rejection can be funny. Want to dance? Rejection can be sad. I don't want relationship. But rejection can also be eternal. And that's what I want to talk about today. I'm going to be in the Gospel of Mark. In your New Testament, you've got four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There are four accounts of the life of Jesus told from four different perspectives. Very likely, Mark is actually recording, many theologians believe, he's recording the words of Peter. Peter, the fisherman, one of the best friends of Jesus, very likely an uneducated man. In that time, maybe never have learned to read or write. Mark, a young man, who we have no record of him being with Jesus. But he was with Peter. He was a close associate of Peter and Paul. And so many theologians and Bible scholars believe that when you read the Gospel of Mark, what we very likely are reading are the words of Peter written down by Mark. Interesting thing to consider. It's very simple. Peter is a real main character of much of the gospel. And this is how the gospel accounts work. Four different gospels, all sharing about Jesus, accounts of Jesus, told from a different perspective. And the gospel of Mark is one that is is very quick, very active. A lot of activity, a lot of action. It's all about Jesus. So now that you found Mark, Matthew, Mark, it's the second book in your New Testament, find the 12th chapter, because that's where I want to be today. 
I want to look at a, a story that Jesus told, and this story is about rejection. And I want to challenge us today with, are we rejecting Jesus? Are we rejecting Jesus? You may come to the conclusion after our time together that you have rejected Jesus, and I'm going to call for you to receive him. Or you may be somebody that as we talk about this, you're going to say, no, I've received Jesus. I've received him. Well, then this is all about your remembering. Remembering what it was to live in rejection of Jesus. So that's where we're going to be today, and we're going to start out really looking at the whole last week. But I want to start and read for you Mark chapter 12 and read verses 1 through 12. So follow along with me in your Bible if you have it. If you don't have it, just listen. I like to read and follow along with me. And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. So even notice right there, sorry, parentheses, something's changing in verse number 1. Something's changing. He's speaking in parables. And he tells this story. Now this is a story that Jesus made up. This is this, now this story is something that Jesus, in his imagination, created to make a point. So let's hear the story that Jesus told. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Let me just pause there and just say, this seems a little bit obscure to us. It seems a little bit odd what's happening here. But in Jesus' day, this is an everyday occurrence. This is happening all the time. There's vineyards all over the place. And it's not like every single person that works a vineyard owns it. The land is owned by the rich people of the community. But they would sort of rent out that land for tenant farmers to come and man the vineyard for their employment. And that's exactly what Jesus is explaining. Okay? So he leased it out and he went away into another country. The owner did. Verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Can you imagine that? The owner sends a servant to the tenants expecting that they would now fulfill their end of the obligation and give some of the fruit, some of the, some of the, reap some of the benefit of this land and share it with the owners. But that's not what they did. They saw the servant coming and they attacked him and they beat him and they sent him away with nothing. What would you do? If you were the tenant, the farmer that is, if you were the landowner, what would you do? I'm coming to town with a big stick is what I'm doing, right? I'm going to come and take care of business if this is my farm. But notice what happens. Again, verse number four, he sent, them to, an, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head. And they treated him shamefully. So even worse, Jesus didn't even go into the detail of what they did. But they treated him in a shameful way and bashed in his head. And he sent another, that's the owner, sent another servant. 
In him? Well, it says very clearly, they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now let me just stop there again and let me just mention. The people that are hearing this story, this parable, this is, an, this is a situation that they'll be very familiar with. Tenant farmers, vineyard, coming to collect. But as they hear this story, they're shocked. This is shocking. This, this is a shocking story that Jesus is telling. This ought not to be so. This is not allowed. This is illegal. Somebody needs to fix this. The hearers of this parable, they would be getting worked up just like you would if this were you. So what are you going to do now if you're the owner? What are you going to do now? You've sent servant after servant after servant after servant. Your hired hand, you sent your managers, you sent them there and they beat, abuse, and kill every one of the people that you send. Not just three, many, many others. Well, verse number six. He said he still had one other person. The the owner has one other person. A beloved son. Finally, he sent them, his son that is, to them. And he said, they'll respect my son. Surely they'll respect my son. I'm telling you, across the, across the field where Jesus told this story, across the street corner where he shared this, there was a collective gasp. What? Sent his son? He has every right to send a, an armored guard there. He has every, every right to march an army in and to kill those wicked tenants. He should march in there and he should kill, he should stone them, he should crucify them. They should die for what they've done. That would be righteous. And that's what everyone would honestly expect the owner to do. And it would be right. It would be righteous. It would be fair. It would be correct if he did just that. But he didn't. He sent his son. He sent his son. And he said, surely the tenants know me and I know the tenants. I've provided for them this great vineyard. I've given them employment. I've given them opportunity. Up until now, they didn't realize that it was really from me. Maybe they thought the servants were acting on their own. Maybe they misunderstood. But I'll send my son and him. They'll accept. But those tenants, they said to one one another, this is the heir. Here he comes. Here comes the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. 
And they took him. And they killed him. And they threw his body out of the vineyard. And now there's a pause. No, it's not here in your Bible. Okay, it doesn't say pause. But Jesus was a masterful storyteller. He was a master story composer. And he stops now. And he lets the listeners feel the moment. And he asks a question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? They said, he will, he will come and, and destroy the tenants and, and give the vineyard to others. Surely this is what's going to happen. Jesus said, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And all, now, this is now the, the hearers understand. They understand what maybe many of you already have. They understood that Jesus was speaking about them. Verse number 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told a parable against him. So they left him and went away. Now that's Mark 12, the parable of the vineyard. And I love it. Man, it's a great parable. It's one of my favorites in all of the Bible because there contained in it is so much truth for us today. It's about rejection. It's about man's rejection of the Messiah. It's about man's pride and man's self-deception. But more important than that, it's about the cornerstone Jesus Christ. It is about Jesus and what He comes to offer us and His great plan. His great plan that people didn't even realize that they were fulfilling. When they crucified Jesus, they didn't realize they were accomplishing the very will of God. And Jesus, as he saw that moment coming in just a few days, said, This is marvelous. Marvelous. Let's try to understand this today, okay? But to do that, I want to back up and just walk through what's been happening to Jesus the week prior. So I'm going to start with Sunday. Okay, I know I got a little ahead of you, Aaron, but I'm sure you can figure it out. I want to start with Sunday. What happened a week ago? If today were the day that Jesus was resurrected, what happened a week ago? Okay, so let's just walk through the last week. Just briefly. You can see it there in your Bible. If you're in, your, if you're in Mark, start out and go with me to Mark chapter 11. Here's what happens. At the beginning, on Sunday, Jesus walks into Jerusalem. He's received as the king. They believe that he potentially is the king they've been waiting for. He rides in on the colt, remember that, and lay the palm branches down. And they, they, they sing out to him, blessed, hosanna. They, they cry out to God, worship, because Jesus, the Messiah, is coming into town. They think he is coming to win the day, to conquer the Romans, to finally make wrong right. Oh, how little they understand on Monday, and you can just page through this in verse number 12 of chapter 11. You can just see it there, just for your own information. See how the Gospel of Mark works. In eleven twelve, we're on Monday. This is the day Jesus walks into the temple and cleanses it. Jesus here sees the, the activity in the temple and the, 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 the dishonor that it is to the Lord. And he drives out the sellers. 
He drives out those that are using this religious system to their own monetary benefit. This is the second time Jesus cleansed the temple. You can read about the first time in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his public ministry. Now we're at the end. He will die in four days. And he cleanses the temple of those who are really rebelling against Jesus and rebelling against God. Then we come to Tuesday. That's the passage we read. Tuesday is a day of confrontation. Jesus is, I mean, I picture him when you read it here from verse number, let's see, 1120 through the end of chapter 13. When you read about Jesus' activity here, it's like he is walking like like a pinball. He's walking through the streets of Jerusalem and he bumps into somebody and they say, Hey, Jesus, I got a question for you. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? He answers them. Then he pings over to somebody else. Hey, Jesus, I got a question for you. And they ask a theological question about marriage and and the afterlife and all these things. And he answers it. And then he pings over someplace else to another group of people. And they say, hey, Jesus, tell us this. What's the greatest commandment? And he answers that. And then he pings somewhere else. He's just going left and right and left and right. Walking through the streets of Jerusalem, interacting with people, many of them only out of a desire to reject Jesus. Tuesday is a big day. He tells this story we read in chapter 12 about the vineyard. Now, it's interesting. Wednesday, nothing. Nothing. We have no account of what happened to Jesus on Wednesday. He and his disciples go out into the countryside behind the city, and they spend time together there. And Jesus again tells them, we're going to go into Jerusalem. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to be resurrected. And I will meet you again in Galilee. He's telling him that, I believe. Back in Bethany. He's, he's repeating these themes over and over. And then Thursday comes. Jesus comes back into Jerusalem. They celebrate the Passover, he and his disciples. We read that passage and we celebrate communion. And on that night, Judas betrays Jesus, goes to the authorities for, as Pastor Billy said, pocket change, betrays his Lord, and conspires with the authorities to have Jesus arrested. Through the night, Thursday into Friday night, Jesus is now arrested. We go through a whole series of just kangaroo courts. It's completely illegal, even by their own rules, that they don't even follow their own rules as they sentence Jesus to death. They start out from the very beginning, they were going to kill him, and by the end of the night, they figure out a way to make it happen. And on Friday, at 9 o'clock in the morning, they nail the one who spoke us all into existence. They nail the one who loves us with an everlasting love. They nailed him to a cross and lifted up high and dropped it into a hole where he would expire for the next six hours. And at three o'clock on Friday afternoon, the Bible says that Jesus breathed out his last and said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's taken down from the cross. Joseph 
a Pharisee, Nicodemus, I believe a secret convert of Jesus. They take his body and throw it in a tomb. And he stays there Friday, Saturday, really dead. And on Sunday morning, his disciples meet him again. The whole story, the whole account, the whole event is filled with rejection. It is filled with offering. It is filled with acceptance. It is filled with love. It's filled with an invitation. And I call you to it. Let's see it here in the Mark 12 passage and maybe understand it a little bit better. So let's, let's just let's look at it briefly. When Jesus tells the story of the vineyard, here's what he's trying to point into their minds. A vineyard was a, is, a, is an illustration that was used for the Hebrew people over and over and over. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's almost an exact word-for-word repeat, the Mark Mark chapter 12 passages of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is is definitely recalling Isaiah 5 as he tells this story. So the vineyard represents the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, who God chose them and said, I will send my Messiah through you. The Messiah will come through you. And I will send my word to the world through you. And you will be a light to the Gentiles. This was his plan. And God worked this plan. He worked this plan for about a thousand years. More like 1,400 years. He's got his people who are, who are declaring the law, declaring God, declaring his way. And as man so often does, They did exactly what these tenant farmers did. They rebelled against the owner. They said no to the owner. And so the owner would come back to them. God would come back to Israel. God would come back to the Jewish people and say, Are you declaring my coming Messiah? Are you declaring my Christ? Are you living for me? Are you pointing the Gentiles to me? He would send people to them to remind them of that. Those people are called prophets. One's called Isaiah. One's called Jeremiah. One's called Ezekiel. And they're all through your Bible. And over and over and over and over again, the people that were meant to be God's people, you know what they did to the prophets? You know, Jesus told the story. What'd they do? They bashed in their heads. They treated them shamefully. They killed them and threw them out of the city. Over and over and over again. Nearly every prophet that came was killed by the very people who were supposed to be the ones who brought the message to the world. Till finally, God said, I'll send my son. I'll send my son. And Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. See, there was a plan. There was a plea. Receive me. Receive what I'm offering. But over and over again, there was a plot to kill, and it finally ended with the worst murder in history. The worst murder in history. 
It's the only time that an innocent man has ever been killed. It's the only time that an innocent man has experienced capital punishment. There is no other time. Oh, you can find some 2020 story about somebody who didn't commit some crime and they died in an electric chair, but that man wasn't innocent. This one was. Jesus, Pilate himself, said, I find no wrong in this man. An innocent man dies at the hands of sinful men. An innocent man who was bringing truth, who was bringing love. And they killed him. And Jesus, in verse number 10, says something that I want us to see here. It's going to be quick. But I'm telling you, it's hard-hitting if you allow it. If you've got ears to hear, it'll smack you. Let's see it. Jesus said, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I want to point out to you the foolishness of the builders. And I want to ask you, I want you to ask yourself, Are you a builder? Are you a builder today? The Bible calls unbelievers a lot of things. The Bible calls unbelievers sinners. It calls them people who practice iniquity, transgressors. But probably the worst thing the Bible calls an unbeliever is a fool. Twice in the book of Psalms, It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Probably the worst thing that the Bible or God can say about a person is they're a fool. And what I want us to see here is that these builders are foolish. They are foolish. And I want to challenge you to evaluate yourself. Are you a foolish person? builder the foolishness of self-deception the foolishness of believing that you know right the foolishness of believing that you can evaluate whether or not jesus is real the foolishness of you believing that you can establish whether there really is a god listen jesus is the cornerstone regardless of what the builders think Builders can deny him all day long. They can say he's an idiot or he's a fool or he's a lunatic. It doesn't change the simple fact that he's the cornerstone. But builders are foolish. Jesus says, you builders, you think you know. You think you know what is a stone and what is not a stone. You have no idea. Is this not the way that man is? Oh, we think we can evaluate. We think that we'll find some secret in the Bible that'll prove that it's all contradictory. Or we'll see some scientific fact that'll show us that there is no God. You fool! You fool, Jesus would say. Who are we to speak to God and say, you have not proven yourself. You have not established yourself. Who are we to say to Jesus, you can't, you can't be the savior of the world. He is the maker of the world. He is the lover of the world. He is the cornerstone. 
be careful of foolishness that says, I will evaluate. We can't build and we can't even identify a decent stone. You know that? We have no, if it were not for God, you would never find him. You know what man look, you know what man finds when he looks for God? Nothing. Himself. That's all he finds. Because it is the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. The foolishness of cornerstone rejection. You know what the Bible says about those that trust in Jesus? Well, they say that we are new creatures. We are children of God. But I want you to turn your Bible to an interesting statement. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look there with me and see something interesting here. Verse number 23. It says, We... Are you there yet? I hear pages. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. And now the next expression. See what it says? And folly to Gentiles. You know what the word folly means? Foolishness foolishness so in all this talk of rejection and foolishness let's understand this simple fact we can go out to the marketplace we can go over to walmart or our our public square whatever that may be and we can speak of jesus being a powerful teacher we can speak of jesus being a moral man we can speak of jesus being an example to us of living for other people, an example of an ultimate sacrifice of our life. And you will get accolades. You'll get slaps on the back. Good job. I agree. He's a good man. He's a moral teacher. He's a picture for us of how we should live our life, sacrificing for others. But you declare that God laid on him the iniquity of us all and you will be called a fool the world can accept that jesus was a moral teacher the world can accept that jesus was a good man the world can accept that jesus died a sacrificial death but we will not accept that we are sinners and we have no opportunity to fix ourselves we have to be reborn we're so rotten That we have to be reborn. There's no education. There's no vocational training. There's no no behavioral modification. None of these things are going to deal with our sin problem. Preach that. Share that. And you're called a fool. If Jesus died on the cross for sins, the world will call us a fool. But Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, said, you have rejected the cornerstone. You have rejected the cornerstone. Go back with me there. Mark chapter 12. I challenge you. Where do you stand regarding 
the cornerstone. Have you received Him? Have you believed Him? Have you believed? That's that's what we do with the gospel. We believe and we receive. We believe what Jesus died for sinners. We believe that I am a sinner. We believe that His death was the only hope, the only help, the only opportunity that I have for life. I believe that and then I receive it. This is the call of the gospel. Jesus' death was not because he was a moral teacher. It was not because he was a moral man. It is not as an example of sacrifice. It is not an example of a pacifist who is just living out love. That is not true. To think that is foolishness. Jesus died for sinners. Because that is the only hope that we had. Thus, verse number 11, he's called the cornerstone. The cornerstone. You know what you do with a cornerstone? You build on it. That's what you do. You build on it. So then when the rains come, because they do, when the storms come, they do. When life comes their, your way, it does. And it rattles you to, to the foundation. When death comes, because it will. The cornerstone holds. It's the only one it does. It's the only one it does. Jesus spoke of a foolish builder who built on sand. Jesus spoke of a foolish man who said, what I'll do is I'll build up barns and I'll put all my stuff in it. And Jesus said, you fool. Your life we demanded of you on this very day. Build on the cornerstone. Root in the cornerstone. Receive the cornerstone. Believe on the cornerstone. He's the one. Look what he says. This was the Lord's doing. This is why we call Friday Good Friday. It makes no sense. Am I right? The Savior of the world, Jesus, God, comes, abused, nailed to a cross, dies. You call that good? That doesn't make any sense. Why is that good? Jesus said it's good. Jesus said, look what he said. Verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. It's funny, the religious leaders of the day, they thought they were ruling man. They thought they had everything in control. They thought they, they thought they were exercising their will against Jesus. Little did they know that through their sin, God was bringing grace to the world. And this very rejection of the cornerstone was the Lord's doing. That's how much He loves you. That's how much He loves us. That's how much he loved me. That the wrath of sin, the, God's righteous wrath, God's wrath that had been stored up for generations was now poured onto his son. This was God's plan to deal with our sin. And Jesus said, It is marvelous in our eyes. Maybe we should call it Marvelous Friday. That might might make more sense, you know? Marvelous, what Jesus said. Marvelous. 
So why so marvelous? We have, you know, the goodness of what God is doing. We see it here. Why so marvelous? To wrap up, turn a couple pages with me as we see how the Lord worked this out. Go to Mark chapter 16. We've read a parallel of this tonight, uh, already this morning, but why is it marvelous? Because of what we read in chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that's why we're here on Sundays, celebrating the resurrection. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And it was large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is, he has risen. He is not here. Thus, the cornerstone, the rejection of the cornerstone, the murder of the son, the plan of God is now called marvelous because Jesus is no longer dead. He is risen victorious over death so that we who receive him can receive from him that life. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive what he has done, the Bible says that he imputes to you, that means he places onto you his righteousness and his life. And then you look at the Friday, you look at the cornerstone rejection, you look at the parable of the vineyard, and you say, it is marvelous. Because now I have life. Do not reject. Do not foolishly reject. Jesus invites us to receive what he has done. Will you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your your grace that sent more servants and sent your son willingly into the hands of those that would attack and harm and hurt and murder. And Lord, it was how you chose to deal with our sin. And so you rose victorious, demonstrating to us today, 2,000 years later, that this is real. Now just listen as we continue in prayer. If you need to receive Christ, you can do that where you are right now. The Bible is very clear. You must believe. 
You must believe what Jesus has said he would do and did. You must believe what Jesus has said you will do and did. You must believe that you are a sinner and that he is the Christ and that he died in your place. And you must receive that. You must receive that as your gift and your forgiveness of that sin. If that's the call of your heart, you just pray to the Lord a prayer. Just tell him, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that my sin separated me from you forever. I mean, I know that you died in my place. And I know that you died for my sin. And I receive you. The best friend of Jesus wrote these words. And to all who received him, he gave them the right to be a child of God. Thank you for your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.